0: Welcome to our podcast from The ARK Insider, a truly global affair. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of Arc, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. Our podcast, The ARK Insider, aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on news, current affairs, culture and other ongoing topics of interest. We're both passionate about Africa and we aim to offer an insight into what we think is the most dynamic continent in the world. Hi Tara, good to connect with you again. And hello Karen from France,
1: where we have got sustained rain, rain and more rain and lots of flooding now.
0: Yeah. Same as South Africa, I'm afraid. I don't think we're going to dwell on the weather. We need to move on because we've got an interesting guest on this podcast a little later on where we delve into the murky world of fistfights, oil rights and Nigeria's attempt to conduct the biggest shakeup in the energy sector in a generation. Helping us to navigate that stormy terrain is a prominent Nigerian energy analyst, Najim Animashon. But first, Tara, let's take a look at what's been happening in the news since our last podcast. Mozambican President Filipe Nussi has offered an amnesty to
1: citizens who joined the Islamist insurgency in the gas-rich northern province of Cabo
0: Delgado. After the unfolding constitutional deadlock in Somalia, where the U.N. Security Council is due to meet Tuesday to discuss the emerging political crisis in the country, Somalia's President Mohamed Abdullahi Farmaajo has not addressed the nation since his term ended on Monday. Now to former President Trump's Senate impeachment trial less than 48 hours away. Tonight, a closer look at the battle lines as some Trump supporters facing charges for their participation in the deadly siege on the capital say they were just listening to the president.
2: Security forces in Myanmar have again used water cannon to disperse crowds after people defied a ban and demonstrated for a fourth day against a military coup. Some reports also suggest police have been firing gunshots into the air. The junta is now, has now imposed a curfew on Yangon and Mandalay. Pro-democracy activists say they will continue to fight
0: picking up on stories in South Africa, the Marathon State Capture Commission of Inquiry, the Zondo Commission continues apace, with the big development being that it's called for charges to be laid against the former president, Jacob Zuma. Now, it's because he's defied a constitutional court order mandating him to appear before the commission, led by Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, which is forensically picking its way through an era of grand corruption in South Africa, you remember, Tara. Now, I know you're also following this quite closely, but My take is that Mr Zuma's legal shenanigans really demonstrate his desire to use the State Catcher Commission as a pulpit to rally his support base and position himself as as victim, as he's done so many times before. He, of course, says that there is... A grand conspiracy aimed at muddying his name. True, but
1: whatever Zuma tries to do, it seems to be the strategy of last resort. You know, what's important about the Constitutional Commission's uh, judgment that Zuma must attend uh, the Zondo Commission is that its uh, legal system and judiciary are being restored step by step and judgment by judgment.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And and they you know, people have pointed out from the commission that, you know, President Zuma is accepting sort of the trappings of being a former president and uh, the, the the tax benefits that go with that and other sort of financial goodies, um, but not prepared to face the music at Zondo.
1: And indeed obey his, um, obey his constitutional oath.
0: Well, more intrigued, Tara, because Julius Malema, the maverick political chameleon of South African politics and a man who once said he would kill for Jacob Zuma, then promptly turned around and stabbed him in the back saying he should be jailed for corruption. Now, he's reported ...reportedly cosing up to his former boss and fellow populist. Mshlozzi, that's the affectionate name that you know gets used for Jacob Zuma... ...is reported to have received a request from, said Julius Malema... ...to come to his controversial compound in Encandla for a cup of tea... Now, as you know, Tara, a cup of tea in South Africa is usually more than a warm beverage. It's a code for a a more weighty engagement. So headline writers, as you can imagine, they've been having a field day, wondering whether the pair will be spilling the tea on what the face of it looks like a move to revive relations between the two men. And some political analysts have speculated that what both Jacob Zuma and Julius Malema have in common is that the Zondo Commission, that state capture commission we've just been talking about, is investigating both of their conduct. So they could be hatching a plan to undermine or sabotage proceedings, all tied up yet again in legal red tape. Watch this space.
1: And the test of South Africa's constitution and legal legal system in recovery is if these populist street fight skullduggery will win over the justice system. It worked for Zuma once, if you remember, with his first corruption trial before he became president. But I think With the South Africa's National Prosecution Authority under professional new management, I'm convinced he will have his day in court. And while we're on South Africa, Karen, it is interesting to see that despite real fears for the economy uh, that was earlier this year spiraling downward um, in response to the COVID crisis, the country has actually recorded at the end of the year a trade surplus, which is very good news. The uptick in the Chinese economy, uh, South Africa's main trading partner, has fueled demand for South Africa's main mineral exports, such as platinum, feeding China's very ambitious target to become the biggest supplier of electric cars the world over.
0: And Tara, just remind me from my economics degree, how does a trade surplus play out on a macroeconomic level? What does it mean for the ordinary man and woman on the street? Well it basically means
1: that, um, it means really that the rand will be stronger, which means that um, when South Africa does buy external goods, they are cheaper. But also greater revenue from mining and mining exports means that the government gets some badly needed revenue from the mining sector at a time when it is in its government coffers are pretty bare largely because of its overspending on state-owned enterprises. But it will give President Ramaphosa a bit of a breather to develop something of a recovery plan when South Africa emerges from the COVID crisis.
0: Yeah, good point. And Tara, you just a quick note, you mentioned cars when you were talking about China and the electric car industry. Now, Ford has announced a massive investment in South Africa to the tune of 15.8 billion rand. I think that's about up for 54 million US dollars. It plans to build its new Ranger model in South Africa and it follows similar announcements that we've seen from other car companies like Toyota and Volkswagen to build their next generation of vehicles in South Africa too. Obviously, it's good news for jobs, but in the longer term, Tara, I know you've got some reservations.
1: Yes, I have reservations because a lot of this will be investment in models of cars that will be obsolete in Europe by 2030 and South Africa may be saddled with making petrol-based cars at a time when electric cars are really the next big thing. Really, I think South Africa should be moving towards um, developing an electric car industry itself. Yeah. Finally, Karen, the Nigerian president has sacked his security chiefs, the important heads of army, navy and air force. It's a long-awaited move, mainly driven by the worsening security situation in terms of terrorism in the north, piracy in the Gulf of Guinea, and banditry in many parts of the country. But I also think a contributing factor was the public pressure that came from those protests that we saw at the end of last year as part of the End SARS campaign, pushing for greater police accountability. You'll remember that it it resulted in the massacre of about 50 protesters when Uh, Security chiefs allegedly called on their troops to open fire, which received in turn massive international attention. So perhaps pressure to reform the military came from behind the scenes.
0: You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, we're focusing on Nigeria and Nigeria's powerful petroleum sector, which is going through something of an overhaul, which represents potentially the biggest economic shift in sub-Saharan Africa's largest oil-producing nation since the 1970s. Oil and politics are inextricably linked, but nowhere more so than on the African continent, perhaps, than in Nigeria. Our guest is Najim Animashon, a prominent Nigerian energy sector consultant. Najim, welcome. Uh, where are you speaking to us from?
2: Um, well, thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Oshobo, which is the capital of the state of Oshun in southwest Nigeria. It's most noted for two things. One is the Sacred Grove, which was made uh, uh, famous by um, Susan Wenger and is a, uh, a World Heritage um, Centre. And uh, it's famous for its gold.
0: And you know a thing or two about the, uh, the oil business.
2: I think I know a thing or two about the politics of the old business in Nigeria. I worked as an assistant to somebody who was a former minister of petroleum. I um, was a second special assistant to him uh, back in 2008 when the first petroleum industry bill was actually um, published. Uh, And the whole process of trying to set this legislation into motion, uh, which has not really seen fruition for the last 14 years... Uh, came into being. So I have some experience of, of, of the legislative process and the politicking behind it.
0: You're talking to me in, in South Africa, and I know very little about the oil business, and Tara O'Connor in France, who knows a heck of a lot more. So it's wonderful to have you with us on the Arc, Arc Insider.
2: Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you, Najim, and and greetings from France.
0: Now, bear in mind that many of our listeners won't be familiar with Nigeria's energy sector, but in a nutshell, um, a major piece of draft legislation, the Petroleum Industry Bill, has made it into the National Assembly in quite a dramatic fashion, hasn't it? I understand there were clashes in the House of Representatives recently over it. Can you set out for us, really simply, what does it aim to do in terms of breaking up the monopoly power of the Nigeria National Petroleum Corporation? Essentially,
2: um, what... This bill tries to do, well, it tries to do a lot of things, but essentially what it tries to do is to create uh, a predictable legal framework um, that would allow people to operate fairly competitively in the petroleum sector and makes it less open to discretionary awards and patronage which has come to define the sector. Uh, and that patronage is essentially the, the epitome of that, that patronage network is the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, which essentially provides most of the government's revenues and is largely unaccountable to anybody but the president. So what they're trying to do is to basically unspool some of the connections within the petroleum industry and the political elite while also providing the host communities who actually host these, uh, these oil fields and these petroleum assets with a, a, a stake in, in the petroleum industry. There's a, there are several parts of the bill, and that gets into the technical aspects. There's the regulatory aspect that deals with the institutional arrangements um, that defines the powers of the minister and the granting of licenses and those other things. Then there's the commercial part, which deals with the, with the, the, the state-owned oil company, which is the Nigerian national petroleum company. There are provisions that deal with the midstream and the downstream, which is basically the, the petroleum, the refineries and the, the petrol stations. And there's a standalone provision that deals with gas. Um, and of course, when you have a lot packed into it, dealing with all parts of the industry, the entire value chain, have a lot of stakeholders with a lot of issues and they're not aligned
1: it's how long is it now that we've been fighting over it uh najim
2: this petroleum industry bill has been gestating for close to uh 16 years since it was first drafted around 2004 2005 at that point in time it was limited to downstream it wasn't dealing with the entire value chain
1: just for our listeners, you know the downstream sector is your petrol stations and your refined petroleum, uh, and the upstream is um, upstream is actually your exploration. And what is midstream?
2: Well, essentially, your 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 upstream is where you look for uh, oil and you find it and you produce it. Uh, your midstream is when you essentially take it away, or you take it to the refinery and your downstream really starts from the refinery to the petrol station.
1: Can we put it into context of some other oil, you know, national oil companies, such as those in Saudi Arabia and Angola, which have gone quite a long way to reforming their state oil companies. Maybe put the NNPC into some context in Nigeria and why reform is so important.
2: Uh, There are questions of solvency with NNPC. It has a lot of assets. It's not an active operator of those assets. Uh, It's never really been able to define itself in the way that Saudi Aramco has defined itself, or as Sonongol has tried to position itself. Saudi Aramco is huge. It's a massive oil company. But before Saudi Aramco was nationalized, it was Standard Oil of Arabia. So it was a private company. Its DNA is essentially a corporate DNA. And that DNA comes out of Standard Oil's essential business model. And Standard Oil's essential business model is not that different from ExxonMobil or Chevron or all the other daughters that came out of Standard Oil, which is very different from Shell, which actually operates its assets more than outsources much of that. And MPC has never really figured out whether it wants to be a Shell or whether it wants to be an Exxon. It's tried to be all things to all men, and ultimately what has happened is that The pressures of political patronage and the revenue pressures that have been imposed by the federal government has meant that its focus has been more on non-commercial.
0: You know, Nigeria is trying to reform its, its oil sector, but it's happening at a time when the march towards greener, cleaner fuels is expected to gather pace especially given what's happening in the United States, the new Biden administration in the US has made a commitment to uh, supporting greener fuels. Does Nigeria have a plan B? Because it doesn't sound like, you know, it has. Whereas, as I understand, other countries, which are big oil producers like Norway, uh, is already investing in, in greener energy. That's actually a
2: very good question. I think Nigeria has got a pretty good green policy. In it's, it's, it's actually done a few green bonds. I know Tara can talk more to those. And they were quite successful. The problem is that the link to between the petroleum industry and Nigeria's you know, policy, climate change policy, is a little tenuous. The conundrum for the political elites is this: the pie is getting smaller. In other words, oil as a or petroleum as a as a proportion of GDP is shrinking. Even as a proportion of of national revenues, which is what the government gets, it's also shrinking. Um, In 2016, during the recession, sorry, non-petroleum revenues to government outstripped petroleum revenues for the first time since 1971. That's 45 years that that chain was broken in uh, 2016. Now, in 1971, that was made possible essentially because of um, the impact of the change in the law in 1963 allowed non-British companies to come and explore and they were very aggressive. And so Nigeria boosted its production and it was very much a sought-after country. And once Nigeria now created its own national oil company in 1971 and joined OPEC pretty soon after in 1972, petroleum became basically the mainstay of the economy uh, and we got the problems that we got as a result. But 2016 was was a watershed year when Non-oil revenues exceeded oil revenues. When 25% of our GDP is agriculture, and most of our agriculture is subsistence farming, you start to ask yourselves the kind of questions that, well, 40% of your workforce works in agriculture, 25% of your GDP comes from agriculture. It makes sense to devote politically and legislatively more time to that than to petroleum, even though petroleum accounts for 55% of your revenues. I mean, I understand the ease. It's easy money, petroleum. You just tax it or you collect it and you move on. Trying to herd farmers to pay taxes is going to, or cattle tax is going to be a lot harder, but it will generate more revenues in the long run. And it will generate more revenues that um, will make your country credit rating more stable in the long run.
1: Yeah, so making petroleum history is probably the best strategy for Nigeria
0: going forward. We've learned an awful lot. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Well, thank you for
2: having me. It's been, um, been a great pleasure to be on, on on your show. And
0: we will invite you back
1: once and if the Petroleum uh, Industry Bill gets passed. Oh, that would be
2: fun. <laughs> That's when the fireworks will start.
0: <laughs> we want ringside seats. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to The ARK Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Arc produces country reports every month about the region. You can get more information about a subscription to these on info at Africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.